Virginia around the world now, um, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, uh, after three, we'll take a look at what's happening uh, across the globe. And tonight we can head to South America. Uh, our man uh, in uh, Mexico is John Bonfiglio, and he joins us from there now. John, hello, my friend. How are you? Hey, Darren, how are you? I'm really well. Long time no speak, my friend. It's so good to see you again. Wow. Isn't it? <laughs> it has indeed. Uh, let's. Um, shall we start? You, you're keen for us to, to to start on the on the border. Um, a, a, you know, a, a raging issue, something that we've sort of uh, followed on of uh, time. Um, what is the latest from the U.S. Mexico border? I mean, well, actually, the latest from the U.S. Mexico border is much what you've been talking about just now. Is actually the Ukrainian issue because on this border, I mean, there's always lots of different things going on on the U.S. Mexico border. But the recent news item is the fact that Ukrainians can fly to Mexico without a visa and then basically then get another flight up to Tijuana and then hope to cross the border without too much impediment into the USA. Whereas in, in order to get into the USA on a direct flight, they need a visa. So it's actually been a fairly straightforward process for Ukrainian refugees to get up into the US in that way until a policy change a couple of days ago, which has meant that the US actually shifted all of those Ukrainian refugees from the border uh, between Mexico and the US down into a holding center in Mexico City. And the perpetual issue, or the perpetual response since uh, Donald Trump, which has echoed into Biden's administration, is to remove the border issue from the border, so to transplant it somewhere else. So what you've actually got now in Latin America is the border issue having repercussions in Mexico City, in the border with Guatemala, in various different towns around Mexico and so on. And so they've outsourced the Ukrainian issue now to a holding camp in, in Mexico City, which understandably, you know, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian refugees aren't, aren't too happy about. So that, that's really the latest breaking news. But, you know, the reason I, I mentioned it as I think a go-to story is because it's a story that even on a quiet day is never too far from the news. You know, you've got this 2,000 mile border, huge border, it's the most transited border in, on, on the globe, 350 million people a year across that border, back and forth. And it, it, it's the bringer and the, um, and the taker of all manner of things from you know, massive economic benefit, both sides of the border, to obviously you know, drugs, people trafficking, movement of weapons, uh, and all manner of different things. But as with all borders, as with all real borders, it's a point of uh, strife, conflict, difficulty, and this one, you know, almost more than anything, really, I think, internationally. I, I struggle to think of another border uh, on the planet which actually has you know, as much complexity and difficulty as the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm, no, it's, it's very true. And... and uh, with that, and I suppose with, I mean, I, 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 I hesitate to say that there has been a, uh, been sort of much of a, a change in the political climate in America because it's still incredibly fraught, isn't it, uh, John? But has the issue of the border uh, shifted uh, attitudes to it? Shifted it? Shifted on its, its its place on the agenda? Any? I, I think that's a really interesting question because the, the, the perception was that with a potential Biden administration, that actually the the border. Uh, I guess the, the kind of the, the, the firmness of the border would would ease somewhat, and it would perhaps be less of a political political hot potato, and that um, it would be more. Well, he and Biden himself said that it's going to be more of a humane, you know, immigration policy at the border. But actually, what's taken place is that you know uh, through mission creep, that basically the Trump policies are actually still in place 
to this day, and nothing really has changed there. To some extent, you can understand that from a Biden perspective, because even though he's changed nothing, the opposite end of the political spectrum are massively accusing him of going soft on the border and the fact that you know numbers have skyrocketed over the course of the last couple of years, which they have because of his policy making. Actually, the reason the numbers have skyrocketed over the course of the last couple of years is, is twofold. One is because of the perception that it was going to go softer, which it hasn't. And the second thing is that the push factors, in particular from Central America, in terms of uh, corruption, organized crime, endemic violence, natural disaster, and so on, have been increasing in that area to the extent that actually, you know, there are a lot more people. But if you look at um, apprehension of the border over the course of about 20 years, 20 years ago, predominantly, the Mexican males that were apprehended at the border and sent back home. These days, it's predominantly Central Americans, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and so on, uh, in groups, in family groups. So a lot more women and children apprehended. We've heard a lot about that you know, in the news cycles and so on. Um, and, and, and they are not going up there on the basis of you know, an individual, male individual, going up looking for work. They are definitely making a significant life choice to get away from something and to go to something else for the long term. Okay, really fascinating, uh, and, and, and fascinating how how I guess that story has shifted uh, from one administration to another uh, without much policy shifting uh, between those between those times. That's that's so fascinating. I think so telling of the sort of polarization of the way that people think these days, right? Um, uh, listen, John, stay there for a bit. Uh, we'll uh, we'll come back to you in a sec. John Bonfilio with us uh, on Talk TV tonight uh, from South America. We need to talk about the uh, president of El Salvador uh, who has uh, an, an extraordinary story. And, um, and and there is an extraordinary story unfolding in that part of the world, actually. We'll get to that next. Uh, more with John on Talk TV after this. Hello there. Uh, good morning. 20 past three. This is Talk TV live tonight from the Talk Radio studio with me, Daryl Morris. John Bonfiglio is with us as well. He's our man in South America. We're journeying around the world tonight to see what's going on. John, when you get, we've got to get to El Salvador, haven't we? And, uh, and, and the president. Um... What is that? I mean, there's, there's a, a remarkable story unfolding there, isn't there? It is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would, the president of El Salvador, a guy called Naib Bukele, uh, is probably one of the most surprising and unique leaders, I think, internationally at the moment. El Salvador really, historically, a basket case. I mean, you go back to the 80s, the early 90s, mass uh, civil war there, you know, huge atrocities, which still to this day are actually being investigated and you know, and work through. And then on the basis of that, you've got mass migration, which is also something which is taking place now. A lot of individuals go up to the US, but then the US deports a lot of those individuals, especially those that are related to develop uh, gang tendencies and are convicted for those in the US, in particular two gangs, MS-13, the Mara Salvatrucha, and then the Barrio 18. And then they send them back to El Salvador. Up until that point, El Salvador doesn't really have a gang problem. With that repatriation of the problem from California, in particular, suddenly this blooms in the 90s. And for the last 25 years, El Salvador has had, has had one of the worst uh, gang, endemic gang problems, I think, in, you, know, you, you could see internationally. So every leader, every political cycle has had to deal with this and has had to deal with it, has fundamentally dealt with it ineffectively. And you've got this young guy, baseball wearing cap, uh, Twitter, you know, uh, of the Twitter cognoscenti uh, individual who comes in, assumes power uh, a few years ago, and he goes, basically says, all bets are off. We're going to make change happen here. 
and and it often happens. You know, there's that kind of thin line um, in Latin America between towing the legal side of the you know of, of, of the breakwater through to the other side of just getting stuff done. He's definitely in the getting stuff done uh, in, uh, end of things. Recently, there's been an upsurge. Actually, he was, he was massively successful in bringing down gang violence towards the beginning of his tenure, to which, you know, most people, he's got 90% support in El Salvador, which is absolutely unique. Um, and most people there, you know, they've had their civil liberties curtailed, and they don't seem to mind, they don't seem to care, because what they have seen over the course of the last few years is actually a downsurge in violence and downsurge in, in civil difficulty and, and so on. Um, and actually, over the, maybe about two or three weeks ago, there was a, an upsurge in, in violence one particular weekend, there were over 60 killings in, in El Salvador, which is the most killings since the, the Civil War. And he came out on Twitter and he said, if this doesn't stop, I'm going to take this out on the prisoners we've already got in, in jail, which is obviously in, in a legal context. How can you do that? It's, it's punitive. It doesn't follow any sort of international norm and so on. But the reception, the reaction to that from the individuals in El Salvador is to say, good on you. And it's an interesting question about democracy. Like, what is the point of it? Not, not my general perspective, but the, the question would be for an, an average El Salvadorian is, what is the point of democracy? If democracy cannot serve us, cannot keep us safe, uh, you know, what does that help us? Is it better to have a democratic system, which fundamentally doesn't do anything for us day to day, or is it, is it better to have an authoritarian president who comes in and actually gets stuff done? And actually speaking to people on the ground in El Salvador, uh, in the last couple of weeks ago. It's interesting because they'll say, well, yeah, we've got an authoritarian president. We've got something akin to quasi-military rule taking place there. But actually, all that that's replaced is gang-related rule on the streets. So it's not as though there's any more or less freedom than there was before. It's just the people who are in charge now who have got boots on the ground who are different to the ones that there were a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Wow. I mean, what is better, democr bad democracy or good dictatorship? It's basically the question there, isn't it? That's an extraordinary. That's an extraordinary question to pose, isn't it, John? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I would probably, I would just, just to point out, I would probably argue for bad, bad democracy in that, in that, in that uh, instance. Yeah, the, the, the standpoint about democracy is the best, the worst political system, except for all the others. But yeah, look, I, I remember not too long ago a. Uh, and a, a priest I was speaking to, who was who had a, an individual, a, a young woman in a safe house, who escaped gang violence in Acapulco, and she was telling this story through the priest uh, to me, the Sanctuary priest, and she was saying, "Look, when the gangs were before the gangs were there, we were robbed all the time. People would break into our house, they would steal our our cattle, and so on. But we had freedom. We could go out whenever we wanted. There were no impediments. Then the gangs came in. When the gangs came in, we couldn't go out after." 11 p.m. If we wanted to do anything, we had to ask their permission. But nobody came and broke into our houses. Nobody stole our livestock. Nobody stole our cattle anymore. So it's one of those really, you know, for sure in a, in a UK context, it's a really straightforward question. But if it's something you've lived through for a generation or longer, what do you want first? And all of these people will tell you, I want to be safe. I want my family to, save, to be safe. And then democracy can be a you know, second place thing. If it's reversed, that doesn't do me any favours.
Gosh, that's really hard to get your head around, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah that's really difficult, isn't it? Yeah. I can't quite, I can't, quite struggling to process that a little bit. But it's a little bit. I mean, Amelia, have you been to have you been to Dubai before? I haven't. You've been to Saudi Arabia? No. Because because that's and, and John, that's a, that's a similar uh, situation, isn't it, uh, uh, John? Really, it, you know, in as much as you have in Dubai somebody who is uh, who is a, 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 a you know a ruler, it isn't democratically elected. I was watching a documentary about this recently as well, uh, where they spoke to some people who who basically made that same argument. They sort of said, well. Yeah, we don't have you know we don't have uh, a, de- a democratically elected leader. Uh, yes, if you were to uh, if you were to tweet something in opposition to him, you'd probably be arrested. But I've also got a nice house, and I've not been never been robbed, and I can leave the door open because nobody comes in, and I'm I'm able to create wealth and, and all that sort of stuff. And it feels like there are a few examples around the world. And by the way, I think this is pretty terrifying. Actually, I don't think this is a very good thing, where dictators have been able to find that that sweet spot that keeps people on side, um, and also. I suppose also keeps international leaders on side and the international community on side um, through through sheer power, I suppose, and and, and and I guess sort of clever use of resources. Um, but but you know, and, and, and sort of doesn't raise questions about about their the legitimacy of their leadership. And, and I think the interesting question about Abel Bailey is what's his motivation? He definitely has those tendencies, but he's also also getting things done. So you know, does he actually want to help the man on the street, or is he actually feathering his nest? And, and, you know, depending on which side of the, uh, of the political spectrum you come from, you're going to have a different perspective on that. He's definitely a ma- maverick president who is changing the landscape, and not just in terms of um, El Salvador, but also internationally. The other thing which is very much worth mentioning about El Salvador is the massive, well, you know, a lot of people say it's a massive Bitcoin gamble that the nation is taking, that the nation is taking but Bitcoin is now legal tender in El Salvador. So from September last year... Every shop, supermarket, industry in El Salvador has to accept Bitcoin as legal tender, um, which is going to, and everybody internationally, all national governments are watching this case study to see what takes place. And so the, the general outsider, again, going back to the gang violence and these authoritarian tendencies, would say, well, that's, that's a crazy thing to do. But actually, if you look at El Salvador's fiscal past, it's littered with the loss of its own currency it adopted the u.s dollar about 20 years ago so now it only employs that so you know the u.s dollar is just a one step further along from not having your own currency so taking on bitcoin is it is it arguably a logical next step in terms of trying to achieve some kind of not just uh, economic control in, in in a country which has always been beset buffeted by uh, economic headwinds but also means that actually you can get take a step ahead by uh, investing in gambling, in inverted commas, in Bitcoin, Bukele is actually saying to a lot of the world's investors, come here, this is a safe haven, we're going to look after you here, this is a place to invest. And to date, again, whatever your view of him, to date, that's worked. Gosh, why me? It's difficult to argue with that. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. It's extraordinary. And it, it's... I don't know. I mean, is it? I'm trying to argue yeah. against it. I'm trying to I mean, argue against it. I'm trying to find the argument it against it. for them... Well, well, at this moment in time. For sure, and, and, it, and it only really works with outlier economies. So economies that have a failed past and can gamble with that, then they they can take that forward. And then, like, ordinarily, Bitcoin and other, um, yeah, and other crypto currencies are engaged with or invested in by small little organizations here or there. They're certainly not taken on by national governments. Actually, a lot of national governments have outlawed them. But when you've got something like, say, in Argentina, which has 25 years of you know, 
economic difficulty. The government there hasn't taken it on specifically, but it's very much allowing it crypto to, to, to live and breathe in that in that context. Venezuela would be another Venezuela economic disaster zone for the last five years. It's got its own national cryptocurrency and is encouraging people because it knows that it has no economic infrastructure to speak of. And it's much the same in El Salvador. It has a, a basis of, uh, of an underscore of economic difficulty, which makes taking on cryptocurrency mm. perfect sense and not much of a gamble at all. Yeah, they're sort of, they're sort of ripe for it, I suppose, aren't they, in, in, in lots of ways. Uh, hey, John, we're out of time, but it's really, really nice to talk to you, my friend. We will do it again, and it's such a joy to have you on again. It really, really is. Uh, it has been far, far, far too long, John. Uh, I'll see you again soon. John Bonfiglio with us in South America uh, on Talk TV tonight.